0: To our 14th session of Islamic Book Reviews with myself and my colleague at the University of Edinburgh, Umar and Anshasi. This is a session where I essentially interview Omar on what he's been reading lately. Uh, this week's book is a text by Martin Tillingham, um, and the book is into a history of Muslim views of the Bible, the four centuries, and it's actually the first of um, planned sort of two volumes. Let Omar present on the book for about 10 15 minutes, and then I will engage in a conversation about the book, in a sense, explore what its implications are for the field and for... Um, I'm also thinking about it as a Muslim, so to speak, what, what does it mean for Muslims as well? And then we also welcome uh, for people to engage in Q&A and share their sort of own comments. And without further ado, i would hand it over to Omar. Please take it away, inshallah.
1: Thank you, Osama, for that introduction. Uh, You were cutting in and out, so I didn't hear all of it, but, you know, I I can assume I know more or less what what you said. Uh, So this is Martin Wittingen's book. As you pointed out, it is the first of a a two-volume project, and he's currently busy writing the second volume. This uh, project, and this, this volume in particular, which I'm going to be discussing today, explores the Muslim reception of the Bible, uh, focusing on a few a few aspects of its reception, uh, particularly how Muslims use and cite the Biblical text and also their views on its textual integrity, this question of tahrif. Is tahrif lafzi or ma'nawi? You know, is it merely the case that the texts were misinterpreted while they remained sound textually? or uh, were the texts themselves altered and changed in various ways? This kind of long-standing controversy that's one of the major themes of the book. And thirdly, to a much uh, lesser extent, this question of abrogation uh, and how, how this applies to the biblical text. In other questions involving the Bible, Martin uh, doesn't explore so much. Uh, for instance, this question of alternative, uh, authentic texts such as the ideas like the, the Gospel of of Barnabas and, and the, the psalms preserved in a kind of Islamic version. So that's, that's bracketed. Uh, so the book is divided into uh, five body chapters in a conclusion. Uh, an introduction that sets the scene and uh, kind of lays out some of the main uh, points of inquiry and exp- explains what exactly the book will be doing and, and what it will be focusing on. Uh, a second chapter that explores uh, views of the bible in the quran and the early tafsir literature in in particular Muqatil bin Sulayman, tabari and al-Qummi uh, a third chapter that looks at uh, the Sira Maghazi literature and uh, especially the hadith as well uh, and a fourth chapter that is uh, comprehensive, it explores a range of genres, including uh, tafsir more broadly, beyond these examples we've just mentioned, a uh, kind of anti-Christian and Jewish polemics written by various Muslim authors, legal works, uh, works of felsifah, uh, including by Ibn Sina and so on, uh, works by Ismailis and histo- uh, works of history, tariq. So this uh, fourth chapter is a very comprehensive one that, that focuses on the other genres not already addressed, and finally, the fifth chapter uh, that looks at, in particular, uh, three major authors whom Martin states uh, inaugurated a, a major turn, a negative turn against the Bible and its use. And the three figures uh, are Al-Qadi Abd jabbar Ibn Hazm, and finally Al-Zawaini. So al is the very last of the theologians whom... Uh, Martin examines, but of those three, uh, in some sense the most significant, and what his research has already indicated in later periods, uh, one whose arguments had seem at least at this this stage, because of course you know we, we have we have to wait to see what what happens in volume two. So it, it ends on uh, this fascinating note. Uh, but Ibn Hazm seems to have been uh, quite widely influential, and his views were. Uh, almost without precedent in terms of how critical they were of the biblical text, both, of course, you know, the New Testament and, and, and the Hebrew Bible. And then a conclusion that, that makes some uh, some broader points and sets us up nicely for the second volume. Um, so, you have a lot going on in this, this text, and it is a major contribution. Uh, why? What is the most important contribution, or why is it such an important addition to the literature, because of course many people have written before on different aspects of Muslim reception of the Bible, you know, including Kamala Adang on the Hebrew Bible and Sabina Smitka and, you know, Goldzia and Hartwig Hirschfeld, whom he identifies as the first author to have really written on this in a substantial manner. Uh, what marks this book out really is its, its comprehensiveness. The, uh, not only in terms of the secondary literature, I mean, a whole library of, of <laughs> library's worth of reading has clearly gone into it but also the primary literature. And you know, my home discipline, I, I suppose, although I, I do Islamic history, uh, intellectual history generally, is, is, uh, is, is law. And you know, I was pleasantly surprised to find him citing even these texts that Ahmed al-Shamsi has edited by, by al-Khafaf and Ibn Suraj. You know, these are published in a specialist, uh, in, in, I think, in Islamic Law and Society. But I, I'm I would I surprised to see a, a non kind of legal scholar citing this. So he's really scoured scoured the sources. I mean there are lots of secondary materials I was unaware of. At best Barzagar has an interesting article on Paul, which I I, I didn't know about, uh, and, and so on. And what crucially he does, and uh, this this is very important, is read Muslim sources. Uh, in conjunction with with Christian and occasionally Jewish sources as well. There's, there's more Christian literature on this subject. And this is proves incredibly illuminating because I suppose one of the, you could say, departures uh, this, this book makes or one of, the, one of the major conclusions is that the belief in Tahrif lafthi of textual corruption of the biblical text is, nowhere, is not nearly as marginal, it seems, in, in the early centuries, as previous scholarship has suggested. You do, of course, find references in all of, all of these various genres. You looked at Tahrif, Lakhti in this early period. But before the late 4th century and early 5th century, it seems to be quite marginal. Where do we find the greatest attestation in the early period? Ironically, in Christian literature, in Christian kind of counter-refutations or apologies against Muslim authors, beginning as early as John of Damascus, who dies in 750. So the fact that John of Damascus clearly refers to textual tahrif and defends this kind of uh, defends, uh, Christians against this charge or Christianity against this charge shows that it was uh, present very early on. I mean, this predates many of our Muslim sources, of course, 750. Uh, and it's not only found early on; it's found persist. It's a persistent charge that Muslims make. It's pervasive, so it's not a marginal view, uh, w- which may be the impression you get from reading, say, early Tafsir literature In Tabari and Muqatil. Uh, tabari is a bit ambiguous or ambivalent, and you know many of the th- many of the things he say says. Sometimes it's clearly taḥrīf at other times it's possible to interpret these as taḥrīf on some occasions Muqatil refers to, you know, what's clearly examples of Tahrif Lafthi, for instance, he says that in the uh, Torah, the reference to the Ka'be has been removed. Al-Qummi says, you know, not surprisingly, give, given his sectarian background, that reference to Ali is, has been removed from the Torah. So yes, you do find uh, references to Tahrif Lafdi even in, in these early texts, and Muqatil also dies in 150, so he's, he's very early indeed. Um, But really, it's it's by reading these Christian texts alongside the Muslim ones, it's illuminating. So not only in John of Damascus, but also in Theodore Abu Qurra, who was the first kind of major Christian theologian to write in Arabic, who dies in 820. In Abu Ra'ata, who dies in 835, again, it's there. And most extensively in this early period, uh, you find it in the work of Ammar al-Basri, who dies in the, or flourishes in the mid-midnight century, And he addresses many pages to to discussing this question, which clearly shows it was a persistent, you know, charge that Muslims were raising against Christians. And the fact that so much ink was spilt defending themselves against this charge shows that it was more prominent than what one might have suspected from just, you know, reading of Tabari or or Muqatil. and generally, it's it's kind of fair to characterize you know, the Hadith and the sira Maghazi literature in this way, in the sense that, you know, you do find references to the Tahrif. Sometimes it's, it is it is lafadi, but it's fairly marginal. You know, the, the, there are only a handful of references in the Hadith literature to Tahrif in any sense. Uh, you know, most explicitly, you will find in the Ayun Akhbar al-Rida, this important Fii akbar text, uh, a report that the 8th of them, Ali al in confronts a Christian, a Catholic Os, and he concedes that there has been a certain amount of tahrif lofty. However, in, in most of these reports, perhaps even, you know, the majority of them, uh, the focus of the reports isn't necessarily, you know, uh, the focus of this hadith is not necessarily what is the status of previous scripture. In the, in the example of Rayun Akbar al the the whole point of this report is demonstrating the, the knowledge of the Imam. And this is just, this point of Tahrif is just an incidental feature. You have other uh, you know, contradictory information. So in uh, the Kitab al-Tawheed from Bukhari Sahih, Ibn Abbas says that the Tahrif is not in the words of God, something Ibn Kathir cites in the same. Uh, and in in, uh, in Nasa'i's Sunan, uh, you find a report that clearly describes or this idea that kings engaged in tabdil of the text, which could mean a number of things. You know, it could be it, it could be textual. So it, it suggests perhaps textual corruption, but these are fairly marginal. And in the Quran, you know, you find 18 references to the the Torah whatever that means, Muslims sometimes use it to refer to the Pentateuch, At other times they use it to refer to the text of the Hebrew Bible more generally, nine references, uh, sorry, 12 references to the Injil, uh, nine of which are alongside the Torah, so Torah will Injil, this phrase occurs on nine occasions in the Quran, and most of the uh, phrases in the Quran, or most of the passages dealing with the Biblical text, which Martin conveniently puts in an appendix. All of them listed very helpfully for the readers. Um, Most of the references are not negative at all. And in fact, the Qur'an directs Jews and Christians in the verses that are widely regarded to have been abrogated to refer to them for judgment. Uh, And so on. And what they find therein. Uh, now, interestingly, already in the early Tafsir tradition, already with Muqatil, the scope of these verses is narrowed considerably. So when the Qur'an says of both the Torah and the Injil that they contain Hukmullah, Muqatil specifies this by saying, uh, you know, zani in the case of the Torah, and, you know, forgiveness of, uh, you know, of murder and so on, and, and, and bodily harm in the case of the Injil. And already in, in, in the early Tafsir tradition, you have this kind of narrowing, and, and these verses are, of course, all believers as Martin acknowledges, uh, you know, in, engage their scriptural sacred uh, the sacred text through an interpretive tradition. But already in the early Tafsir tradition, there is this kind of narrowing of the meaning. Um, and from fairly early on, we have other texts. He mentions, for instance, the letter of Harun al Rashid. Uh, written by Ibn al who dies in 203 or 204, uh, to the Emperor Constantine VI, where he he does uh, invoke, you know, uh, biblical prophecies of, of the Prophet sallallahu uh, alaihi Although it's not clear in that, so this is a very early text, clearly, but it's not clear uh, what exactly Tahrif means in this text, whether it's lofty or manawi. And in any case, it's it's not very prominent. Uh, so,
0: that's uh, that's hopefully gives you an that's, initial flavour of the book. Yeah. That's a... Uh, and I I hope my... Yeah. I tried to resolve Fantastic. my sound issue, I hope it sounds better now. That's wonderful. Um, no, thank you for this wonderful overview. Um, it's and To a certain extent, you've gone into a fair amount of detail with respect to the notion of tahrif. Um, for sort of viewers who are perhaps, and, and listeners who are perhaps slightly less you know, familiar with um, you know the controversy specifically uh, with respect to what the the sorts of accusations made um, either by the Quran or by the early sort of Muslim community, as found in various reports. Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of mentioned taḥrīf. You mentioned tabdīl. You mentioned taḥrīf. Lovely. Do you want to just briefly sort of uh, sure. give an overview of these concepts? Sure. So the Quran refers,
1: you know, to the Torah. It refers to the Injil or the the Gospel, and it also refers to other texts, the Zabur or Psalms of David on three occasions and the Suhuf and al of Musa, and, and so on. Um, and most of the time when the Qur'an refers to these, it seems to assume that they reflect, uh, you know, it, is, it refers to these in, in its own context, so it refers the Christians to the Gospels they have it. It seems to um, reflect an idea that these texts are authoritative or they, 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 you know, they have integrity. But then you have other verses in the Qur'an, that use words and phrases like uh, uh For instance...
0: al So this,
1: and this, of course, is the most prominent of the phrases used in this context. So this is where the idea of tahrif or... Right. Uh, tahrif comes from tahrif being either, you know, actual corruption of the text, interpolation, adding things, removing things, changing words. Or, according to another view that seems to be more prominent, uh, at least in, in, in many early zones of literature, uh, the notion that uh, the text themselves are sound, but what is corrupt is their interpretation. Right. So they've been misconstrued, mis- 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 misinterpreted, uh, and, and this is <laughs> <what> <laughs> that would Yes, be so, the, so that's Tahrif al-Ma'na, Tahrif al-Lath is this text Textual corruption. So this is one of the main. It's not the only question Martin explores. I mean, I should speak very briefly, Osama, if you'll permit me, yeah, absolutely. On, on the on the issue of uh, ness and, and abrogation and so on. Uh, this is also uh, one respect in, in which the book has very much impressed me because he he reads works, <laughs> right, right, early Usul works, you know. He says, for instance, that Shafi'i in his Rasala strongly, su- strongly suggests or strongly implies that there is the Harif it seems, because he talks about uh, they changing their ahkan. Uh I mean, you don't find discussions of the Harif in early Shia Islam works, I and mean, you don't really have uh, Shia Islam works, at least among the Twelvers, until uh, Al Murtada's Dari'ah and Uddatul uh, and Rasul of. Uh, of uh, Tursi, but, you know, already he, he looks at Abu Zayn and also, you know, assuming that because you, you have different ways of view, with, okay, even if you accept that the Bible has been corrupted in some sense, yeah, there's a spectrum of views. So you could say, for instance, that the text is mostly uh, preserved, but there are a couple of interpolations and it's been corrupted in some respects. There are others who are much more critical, like like Ibn Hazm, who uh, would say that you know they're mostly corrupter, and certainly in the case of the of the Gospels, the, these texts have no authority at all because they're just biographies uh, of Isa, a. by unknown people, essentially. Not even his his Sahaba, his companions, but from the the next generation uh, and so on. And uh, you have a whole kind of spectrum of views in between. You know, from complete corruption to complete preservation, if you like.
0: Right. Where and, and in the case of complete preservation, basically the accusation is that the hadith is ma'nawi It's taking place in the way in which it's been interpreted in a way that contravenes, um, you know, the Quran or the teachings of the Prophet
1: Precisely um, Right, I mean... And um, thinking of yeah, Usul basically. just briefly Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, given, given this this debate and positions, for instance, that suggest that uh, as far as I remember from it, Jawab Asaheel, who of course belongs to a, Ibn Taymiyyah, belongs to a later sensory, Ibn Taymiyyah's views is there are interpolations, but most of the text is sort of preserved in, in some sense. And we're waiting for Martin's second volume to indicate uh, uh, you know, how widespread this view was. It's still unclear to me. Now, in terms of usul text, if you accept that at least some of this revelation has been transmitted in the gospel and, uh, Gospels and, uh, and in the Torah. You know, what authority does this have in terms of Islamic law? Hmm. He looks at a number of legal theorists, I'll just mention Dabusi sure, to, sure, to conclude sure. this point. At right. Dabusi, Abu al Dabusi says there are three views. One is that uh, the law of prophets was specific to them and you know it ends with their lifetime. Uh, another view, a second view that is not very distinct from the first, but he says every time a new prophet comes, all of the previous shara'i' are abrogated. <laughs> and the third view, which he finds the most compelling, that uh, shara'a, previous shara'i' are binding on us. Hmm. Now, this is really a, a theoretical <laughs> idea because... And it's a common view among Usulis, legal theorists, but <laughs> Precisely, right. precisely. But there's not a single case Martin says, and certainly <laughs> not I can think of where someone you goes back to the Hebrew Bible and says, <laughs> Well uh, and of course these these sharia are not as uh, as other legal theorists point out, these sharia are not binding on us by virtue of the fact they came to the previous prophets who weren't right. sent to us in the first place, right. but because the Quran mentions mentions right. them. And so that, that's what gives them the, their authority. Yes,
0: I mean, this reminds me of um, a sort of discussion that uh, Michael Cook has uh, engaged in with respect to sort of the, uh, he calls it divine jealousy in one of his books. The notion that, uh, you know, the, the Islamic tradition, in the Islamic tradition, God is very jealous of having a legal authority, you know, that is in a sense situated um, squarely within that dispensation almost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes, Um, I I wanted to sort of, there were, there are a number of directions we can take this conversation and I just wanted to quickly let people know that uh, you are, please feel free, any of the listeners who may wish to comment, um, you can Uh, Comment in the chat uh, of YouTube or in um, the sort of comments of Facebook and we'll get them and we'll be able to respond to them. Aisha Saeed asks, um, I hope these recordings will be available later. And yes, these are always if you're watching on YouTube, the same URL that you're looking at will give you access to this uh, on a permanent basis. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, I, I find it fascinating um, and this is one of the... Uh, of course there's much I haven't said so hopefully course, we'll
1: explore
0: this. Of course, I mean it's it's a very rich text. Um, I have, uh, as, as I try to, I, I'm not as uh, sort of um, diligent a reader as you, Omar, but uh, at the same time these are new terrains for me. I, you know, this is my first proper foray into this uh, genre of uh, writing which looks at um, the Bible. Uh, from uh, an Islamic perspective as it were and uh, for me I mean this was quite eye-opening in many ways um, and you know, one of the one of the questions that came to mind was you know this is a fascinating uh, Martin uh, Whittingham uh, who I don't believe I've met actually and the problem with uh, coronavirus is that we don't interact with uh, colleagues across departments very often um, he's in the theology faculty and uh, I'd I, I got the sense as I was reading through certain sections of this book that this is also obviously an engagement. Um, I, I it wasn't made absolutely clear, but I, I assume Martin is also a Christian um, engaging with the um, Christian texts. Yeah, so, so he's
1: also the director of the Oxford uh, Centre for, yes, yes.
0: for Muslim-Christian uh, uh, Studies, and uh, uh, you know that. Um, I think just opens up this fascinating space for theological conversation as well, which yes, absolutely, um, yeah, which I've um, many a time sort of spoken about the importance of, and uh, I I think, uh, and I hope that there will be conversations that take place um, and dialogical conversations that are taking place with Christian theologians like himself. I'm assuming, uh, as you say, he's the the head of CMCS, um, and uh, and Muslim theologians on these sorts of questions, and I think that would be very sort of um, rich and enriching as it were. Um, yes. I, I wanted to speculate and, and uh, you can sort of let me know uh, on this with respect to Ibn Hazm. So you said that um, sort of uh, Whittingham brings out Ibn Hazm as in a sense one of the most, uncom- well, actually I think you said Joani is one of the most uncompromising although for some reason
1: But I- Ibn Hazm is, is really distinctive and Martin does explore the relationship between them because Ibn Hazm's student, Al-Humaydi, goes to Baghdad and it seems that Joani may have been influenced by Ibn Hazm's critique or at least they're drawn on the same source but Ibn Hazm is by far, (laughs) in this period at least, by far the best informed Muslim author writing on the Bible and not surprisingly also the, the kind of sternest critic there's an important relationship between these points that we should return to
0: I I mean, uh, perhaps we can sort of address that um, in a moment. I'm just wondering, like, my assumptions and perhaps my um, this reflects my own ignorance of uh, what's happening in in the Roman Empire at this point, Um, I I would have thought the centre of intellectual work is closer to the central Arab lands rather than, you know, far away in Iberia, where Ibn Hazm is based. And I wonder sort of how to explain his Severe animus, as 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 it were. Yeah, he's so far away. I mean, well, good Ibn Hazm an idiosyncratic thinker.
1: Of that's course. A, that's a good question. Now, Ibn Hazm, as as I emphasised from Martin's book, is really the best-informed uh, Muslim author of this period. Why? Uh, and we should mention, uh, as indeed does Martin, the the very important PhD thesis of Sam Ross, of course, which will yeah. be published with uh, with the greater. The simple fact is most Muslims had very limited, if any, access to the Bible. Right. And most of the time, at least in this period, most of the time, uh, the access or the most important avenues of access were through interaction with Jews and Christians. Um, There's a lot of kind of intertextual reference. So Joani kind of refers to previous texts and, and so on. A lot of a lot of this go on, and in subsequent periods, Ibn Hazm is also a reference for figures like Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, and Al-Razi, and so on. Right. Um, and uh, Sam in his thesis tries to explain why this is now. One reason why Ibn Hazm is so well informed, he relies uh, in his critique of the Hebrew Bible on the partial translation of this text by Saadiya who dies in in 942. So this is, uh, I, and there are several kinds, it's not a complete one. It's known as a tafsir because it also contains commentary on the Hebrew Bible. Right. Uh, but Ibn Hazm had access to this and he also had access to uh, a translation of uh, the Gospels uh, by, uh, well, in the, in the kind of 10th uh, tenth, tenth century. Right. Uh, the name of the of the translator—it's oh, uh, Velázquez, I, Isaac Velázquez—in I think the the late 10th century. So, but has basically had—and this and, is a translation, sir. So
0: this is a translation into Arabic.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. And he does explore. Uh, I'm citing Sydney Griffith, Griffith, and others. There's a longstanding debate about when exactly biblical texts come to be available in Arabic. Right. Sydney Griffith, who's really the authority on this, says that you have at least parts of the. Bible uh, And the New Testament comes to be available, or bits of the New Testament, before the Hebrew Bible, in Arabic I should say, already in the early 8th century. The Hebrew Bible you get mostly in the 9th century, you have Sa'dir Ge'on's translation in the 10th century, which kind of uh, uh, faces competition, but by the 12th century Sa'dir Ge'on's partial translation of the Hebrew Bible is already the main, main one into Arabic. now. Sam Ross adds, looking at the tafsir, he explores something like 120 pre-modern tafsir texts or most of the printed corpus in this genre. And he informs us that if you look at actual citations of biblical material, uh, they are generally speaking very limited before what he calls the biblical term taking place in the 19th century. When, because of the efforts of uh, people like Cornelius Van Dyck uh, is a major, uh, he has collaborators, but he's regarded as uh, the translator of uh, still what's today the most widely known Arabic translation of the Bible. Once that happens in the late 19th century, and this text is very widely circulated, Sam tells us that I think for every two literate Arabs in the late 19th century, there was one copy of this Bible in circulation. So, really remarkable degree of circulation. And he points to other things as well. Uh, including this is 19th the,
0: century, though. We're talking towards the end of so, the 19th century now. So in a sense, Sam Ross, yeah, yeah, it makes sense that, um, you know, this is in the age of print, so I assume these are not, you know, manuscripts. Precisely, or,
1: yeah, precisely. Right. So that's what Sam Ross calls the biblical tongue, So, this, ship, of course, you do find exceptional authors like Al Biqai on who Walid Salah has written an important monograph on his, his biblical treatise. He defends the use of the Bible and is criticized for this, right? Right. Um, but uh, prior to the modern period, Muslim access to biblical texts, at least at least, let's focus on, on this period that Martin has written about it. The first one is very limited indeed. Right. And superior access by people like Ibn Hazm is very much the exception. Right. Now, he looks at a range of texts where biblical materials are cited. I mean, uh, Ali Akubi had Jewish and Christian informants and seems to stick quite closely to the texts. But others, like al-Baqilani, sometimes cites them, you know, sometimes uh, gives gives us biblical texts we don't recognize. What do you do in such situations? I mean, a lot of authors seem to have been dependent, basically, on, uh, it seems, lists of biblical quotations rather than accessing the text directly so right. and this is all reflected and of course when you look in the hadith corpus and other genres of literature like the kitab of zuhd of ahmed bin hanbal or the kitab of al-Mubarak, mm-hmm. you do find material but often it has a very loose relationship suddenly to the canonical biblical text
0: sure.
1: actually these sort of para and extra biblical texts the non-canonical ones are reflected much more than the actual canonical text in, in Muslim citations and as they're reflected in hadith reports and so on, which is fascinating. So, for instance, and I'll I'll, I'll end this this point on here. Sure. Just, uh, uh, Tarif Khalidi, for instance, I and mean, there are many many books on the Muslim Jesus, as it were. Tarif Khalidi has compiled one series of reports, so he's looked at as many um, you know different. Uh, Muslim texts as possible, and he's assembled a collection of 303 reports, the Muslim tradition attributes to Isa salam, of which only about 45 actually bear any resemblance to New Testament texts, hmm. and uh, I think about 21 of these you find in the kitab, is, these two kitab is Zuhd's by uh, Imam Ahmed and uh, Abdullah al-Barak, so lots of kind of Zuhd sayings were attributed to Isa alayhi salam, un- unsurprisingly.
0: Of course, yes, yes.
1: Uh, now, and when it's... the Quran mentions Tahrif, by the way, or uh, that deal and so on, it it focuses specifically on on the Jews. It does not address address the Christians in this in right. this respect.
0: That's that's interesting. I mean, um, I yeah, I I wasn't conscious of this aspect of the Quran's narrative. I mean, uh, you do have a number of instances which are fascinating in the Quran, uh, at least as I recall at the moment, in which you know the Jews are given a harder time than uh, Christians are Christian you know for example yes and, and this
1: by the way this um, portrayal is also reflected Martin says in the hadith literature right, right. the depiction of the Christians is is, is more varied than, than that of the Jews he says
0: right right um I, I just want to sort of point out that there are a number of questions and comments coming in and, and we're very grateful for them. We will address them hopefully in about 10 minutes time, we'll, we'll shift uh, gears. Um, okay. And uh, But uh, before I wanted to just sort of perhaps um, reflect with you a little, um, Omar, on the question of, I found it fascinating he was talking about the fact that the Qur'an is not actually if you just list the um, sort of verses mm. about the Bible um, or the Torah um sort of whether it's uh, old and new testament so to speak um he and, you know when when you list them as he does in the appendix they don't actually come across as terribly sort of critical for the most part mm. um and i mean this of course in the uh, in the islamic tradition whether shi or sunni um the, the quran is a, an important central text but it's accompanied by tradition it's accompanied by various other sort of teachings and they mm-hmm in general, have this very clear idea that um, sort of this is a problematic text, and it's been superseded, he makes this fascinating distinction between supersession and abrogation, of course. Mm. And I I just wondered, if you would like to reflect a little on, um, you know, what what do what does a Muslim take away from, uh, you know, that reflection, I, I found it a fascinating sort of reflection, but I found myself sort of wondering, well, it's true, but you know, no one takes the Qur'an in isolation, except maybe the Qur'an-only movement of the 19th and 20th centuries, right?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting
0: point, but... <laughs> it's a, it's you know, an, so, an important point, otherwise.
1: An yeah. important one, and, and certainly there are layers to the, well, any religious tradition. Absolutely. Uh, and what does it mean? I mean, the book very strongly reflects this idea that while the, idea, while the notion of the Hadith is clearly there from very early on, We can't push it as far back as the Qur'an, but Muqaddil and another early authors, John of Damascus.
0: Right.
1: Um, The Muslim tradition is is a dynamic one, and this is also reflected in how Muslims have engaged with and interpreted the Bible. And the interesting thing, of course, being that, uh, generally speaking, the, the view has become more critical and more negative over time, such that in the modern period, uh, you know, barring people like say, Ahmed Khan who wrote kind of commentary on, on biblical text, and supported the view of Tahrif uh, Ma'nawi, interestingly. Right. And uh, some of this has been translated uh, by Brill in their excellent series on Christian-Muslim uh, relations. Okay. Uh, but generally in the modern period, I mean if you think of Rashid Ruda and, and other figures like this, and Omar is has written on Rashid Ruda's relationship with the, the so-called Gospel of Barnabas, your muslim views today are entirely negative right of the biblical text. yeah Uh, i mean
0: i i suspect this is partly to do with the fact that you know muslims find themselves in the modern period to a certain extent at the mercy of the legatees of the christian tradition right Um, through through colonization and the rest of it and so in a sense this is one of the ways in which they can perhaps offer some kind of resistance (laughs) Um, i mean but but i wonder yeah i mean That's that's one potential reading. It's just yes, extemporary, so to speak. I think
1: the irony that Sam Ross points out is that in all of in all of the previous period, they generally had more positive views towards the Bible, but they were hardly citing it or reading it. Mm -hmm. Now, in the modern period, when they're more critical than ever, if you look Mm -hmm. at the which they're citing it more than ever, even though their views are more negative than ever. So you have this kind of ironic inverse relationship between authority and citation.
0: Perhaps one way of interpreting that is that, you know, we are citing it, but we need to now make clear the distance that we place between ourselves and it, because if we're citing it, it's as though we're giving it a certain degree of sort of, we're valorizing it on some level. We're recognizing its authoritative nature, perhaps, in some respect. I mean, no, what's I interesting, also. he also re- reflects on the fact that the term *Israeliyat*, which develops a bit later, of course, I think he the mentions that. century, sensory, right.
1: sensory, approximately. And, uh,
0: uh, but today it's you know overwhelmingly a negative term. Originally it was yeah. kind of a, just an observation, as it were. Yeah. Oh, this is from the sort of from the Christians and the Jews that, that sort of So you have
1: this book by uh, Abu Raya, the critic. Criti- uh, what is it? Uh, al Ahbar, the first Zionist, or something like that. <laughs> <Right, right. laughs> entertaining titles.
0: He he did have something for entertaining titles, if I recall correctly. But mm. anyway. Um... I I wonder if uh, we should because there are a fair few sort of comments and, and um, I, I wonder if we should perhaps shift over and Amma um, if you you know sure. have further reflections and uh, I
1: I do know. have a couple so yeah, please. I I've, so we have spoken about a number of things including you know actual access to the Bible and translation and right. uh, and uh, the hadith literature and so on very interestingly you know what was the Muslim group that engaged most positively with the Biblical texts, the Ismailis. And he cites a number of authors, uh, for instance, uh, Abu Hatim al-Razi, uh, the author of Alam al Nabu, as far as I remember, which has been translated, his kind of dialogue and debate with Abu Bakr al-Razi, not the Muhaddith, but the Zindirq and the uh, uh, whom uh, Peter Adamson's book is coming out, I think, next month. Um, they cited kind of to bolster their own authority and also to support their distinctive doctrines of, um, you know, the Imamate and kind of this elaborate spiritual hierarchy, the Wasi and the osia, and all of this. And uh, with authors whom we seem to know as Ismail, the a Safa, they place the biblical text and other descriptions almost on a parallel with the Qur'an as far as authority is concerned. Uh, exactly. And ma- many of the Ismaili authors even accept the crucifixion of Isa a.s. Now, this is not entirely distinctive to them. So, uh, in his excellent uh, discussion of historical texts, uh, for instance, Al-Maqtasi, Sahib Kitab al-Bad' wa Mentions uh, some Muslims support this this idea that Christ was crucified and that his spirit was resurrected, although I didn't see any references to his subsequent migration to Kashmir or anything like this. Uh, That's just an end <laughs> joke, you you're well.
0: Sorry, uh, forgive me. I'm I'm not familiar with. Is this an Ismaili doctrine or no? Uh, this
1: is this is a more a more recent idea. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so you find this interesting and. Uh, I mean, in that, in that uh, fourth chapter, he really ex- explores all of these zones. There's an excellent discussion of kalam. Right. Uh, so, the first extant, you know, extensive refutation of, of Christians and this kind of polemical literature by Muslims is uh, uh, Al-Qasim bin Ibrahim Al-Rassi's al al-Nasara. And he clearly has access, I believe, Martin says to the Russell? Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Al-Qasim bin Ibrahim dies in the two forties. I want to say like two forty-six.
0: early, or like, early yes.
1: And I mean, there are uh, many rasa'il attributed to Al-Qasim bin Ibrahim, and of course, uh, Wilfred Madelon and many others have written about him. There's some debate about the authenticity of some of them, right? Uh, but he does engage in critiques, and it's, I mean, it's not surprising he cites the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Martin says that of all the you know, canonical gospels. The one that influenced the Muslim tradition most was the Gospel of Matthew. Hmm. Uh, Matthew is really, for me, the nicer and more compelling gospel. John is somewhat, somewhat uh, awkward by comparison. I mean, uh, for instance, Ibn Hazakir he says even, even cites some of the Sermon on the Mount, right. which is, which is, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but yeah, you, you do find these uh, in, in important discussions in kalam texts. Uh, and as well as many other genres, histories, tafsir, literature and so on. Right,
0: right. So there is plenty of engagement, um, particularly in the later centuries um, and over time. And, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we look forward to the second volume of this book, um, to sort of Absolutely. explore some of that. Although if he's done four centuries in one volume, um, he's going to, <laughs> and, and, and the literature actually grows thereafter. Yes, um, I, it's I going to that have to be a very large.
1: <laughs> yes. volume.
0: I, I, I didn't get a clear idea, I, I sort of, uh, as is my habit with these um, books each week, uh, I rely on you to do the careful reading and I do the fast reading, but I, I didn't get a sense of um, uh, uh, the, the coverage of the next volume, how many centuries. Um,
1: I mean, it goes all the way from this period, the end of this period, and the right. last author, as I said, he looks at it as who dies in 1085. No,
0: no, but oh, in, in the next volume that's planned...
1: Um, yeah, I mean, he, he uh, simply says it will continue the story all the way into the 21st century. So 21st I imagine there will have time. to be some kind of focus, otherwise the material yes. is just too vast to cover. It's just too vast. But, but it, it will begin with a discussion of, well, how influential was this kind of turn in the late 4th and early 5th centuries inaugurated by these big three, right. as it were. Uh, right. They're cited, but you know, Ibn Taymiyyah cites Ibn not but he doesn't agree with them on, on the extent of the corruption of these texts, for example. Fascinating. Okay,
0: and uh, I mean uh, Al-Jawab al-Sahih was studied by I want to uh, I mean there's that volume from
1: uh, Thomas Richard, Michel. I mean Thomas quite Michel. a few people have written have written on it, including my colleague Tufts who aroused them as of course, well. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and and the number, number of others, Yahya scholars and so on.
0: Right, right, right. Um, so we look forward to sort of uh, the next volume, the next instalment in this. But I think we now ought to give our listeners the chance to of yes. their say so to speak and we do have uh, thank you um for all the people who've sort of sent in uh, remarks and comments uh, aisha said uh, we've already sort of mentioned that the recordings are going to be available i'm going to um, post these and and read them out um for those who are listening in on the podcast yes um and uh, so the first question comes from uh, Yahya Haidar, uh, who's saying thank you for for these wonderful discussions, uh, you're very welcome. Uh, in the realm of theology, to what extent did uh, the Muslim reception and engagement with the Bible impact the development of concepts like al-Kalam and nafsi? Very
1: good question, actually. Very interesting one. I mean, yeah. that is not really reflected in this book. Right. But right. what I can say is, because of the view of Revelation as the Kalam Allah, that means there is a kind of parity at least between the Torah, the Injil and the Quran, at least as these were pre- uh, revealed to the respective Prophets in their original form. Uh, so although in some reports we find, for instance, in the uh, of Abdul Razak, the Prophet changing salatu colour, he finds Omar reading the Torah. Uh, in other, in other uh, reports, for instance, in Shia reports, you find Ali swearing an oath on the Torah, which assumes it's it's Kalam Allah and it's authoritative. And Ibn Abdul barr says, if what you really have in front of you is the Torah, then you should be reading it night and day because it also has this equivalence as a kind of revelation. Now, there's no reflection on this point about Kalam Nafsi in the book. It does, sh- it does play a role because you find already in, in the debates between Ahmed and the Mu'atazullah and other groups and later on even, um when 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 Hanbalis are defending the idea that god's speech is comprised of sounds and letters right uh, they they refer to the biblical text so, so
0: just for for those who are less familiar do you want to briefly explain kalam Nafsi and, and yeah so very, very this
1: species? this idea uh, of the ashara the aside or kind of most mainstream school of theology you could say in later periods that god's speech does not consist of letters and sounds yeah. uh, the Quran is God's speech, but only metaphorically, because His actual speech is a self-subsisting or internal speech, kalam nafsī. Right. And the Quran is merely an expression of the kalam, kalam nafsī. Now, other Muslim groups did not agree with this. Right. The proto-Sunnis uh, and the Hanbalis later on held that God's speech was certainly comprised of sounds and letters, and that it was audible. And when God, when God spoke, Moses heard it, and so on. Mm. As opposed to the mu'tazila who believed that uh, God created speech in the tree and Moses heard it from there in this encounter in, in Sinai right. and so on right. Right. Uh, in the sacred valley of Torah, and, and so on so you have these different uh, different views on. They're not, they're not really reflected on in, in this book because yeah. uh, yeah. he, he, he does look at theology but only to the extent that it, it engages with this question of how is the Bible used by Muslims and, and how do they cite it and abrogate right. it and so on
0: I mean, I think you know every work has to delimit its topic, and I think um, you know this book as a sort of history of Muslim views of the Bible um, does it's what it says. I mean, does what it says on this.
1: And it's you know very even this, I, and you can always add more material. I, you could have cited the Kitab al Taharish of Jarar bin Amr, which, like uh, Saif bin Ammar's Kitab al-Ridda al Futuah, is really the earliest reference to Paul. So there's an interesting discussion of Paul in this book. Right, right. Uh, but you know, really he does an excellent job. I mean, I, I was surprised to see decks of wasool. I mean, all kinds of references to different legal works. Right. Uh, so for instance, Ahmed and Al-Qarafi also said that it was, uh, you, you could not recite previous revelations in your Salah, this would be invalid. Right. Uh, I, in the, in the, what, what is it, in the Mudawwana of Sahanun? Uh, And and even in other texts, Al-Qabisi, the Maliki apparently said, he was asked about what happens if a Muslim curses the Torah of the Yahud. Is this apostasy or is it not? And he answers that it is not because their Torah is corrupt and so on. So all kinds of fascinating discussions like this. It was a really mind the primary sources. It's a remarkable, clearly the fruit of many years of, of hard work.
0: And, and, and we're grateful for it I mean, that's uh, that's a fascinating Because that's also quite early um, the, the report on Ali uh, anhu, um, Sort of uh, reportedly Taking an oath on the Torah This was actually something I was unfamiliar with um, And I didn't have the presence of mind To read the footnote at the time But I'm just wondering what the source is for that um, If it's something which would be considered Because oh. uh, it, it's, it's kind of, of non-canonical my... to me Shall
1: we say I mean, there, there is reference to right. These questions, and I think it may have been Kulaini's cafe, but I'll really have right. to double check that. Right, right, right. Don't, I don't take I my word for it. As well. no problem. No problem. So, reason, reasonably
0: on, um Okay, so uh, uh, Ziryab Jamal actually has the other sort of I think questions and/or comments. Well, this is it's one long comment.
1: comment it's one long comment.
0: So, biblical texts have traditionally been. Shall we, shall we give the talqis? What do
1: you want to read? The sure, sure, please.
0: Tab? Please feel free to give the
1: talqis. So, uh, thank you, Ziryab Jamal. Uh, for your comment. And he asks, uh, well, he points out that the documentary hypothesis that I did, the Hebrew Bible and so on, put together from this cocktail of texts, is unfalsifiable and there's a new paradigm uh, proposed by scholars whose names I will not attempt to pronounce. But he asks, when will we engage with their findings that the Pentateuch was composed in its entirety in 273 to 272, so very narrow, specific period, by Jewish scholars working in the Library of Alexandria, who also published the Septuagint, the Greek translation, at the same time? Right. Uh, that is an excellent question. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not, a, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination right, right. an expert in the study of the Hebrew Bible. I have colleagues, actually, in my department in the School of Divinity and Emperor who are, uh, so I'm afraid I'm not able to entertain that question. You know, I, I believe in respecting our, our boundaries of expertise. Right, right. And, and, and uh, in but... some cases it's immaterial to, um, to this book. He does discuss this idea, you find in Ibn Hazm that Ezra falsified you know, the, 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 the Torah and so on. Hmm. Uh, and Ibn Hazm is not the first to say this, so you find it already in the apocryphal correspondence between Omar bin Abdulaziz Aziz and Leo III, the emperor which is probably a third-century Hijri text. Uh, and, and by the way, the, the charge of Tahrif and scriptural falsification is already in the air in late antiquity. You know, Christians, Jews, and uh, you know, even the pagans, uh, he mentions the philosopher, the Neoplatonist Porphyry, mm-hmm. who uh, accuses uh, Ezra of having, or says that Ezra is the one who fabricated this text. Uh, but we're, we're more interested in this in this episode than in the book, in the Muslim reception of the Bible, rather than uh, you know, what happened in a kind of Rankian sense, if
0: you like. Right. I, I also just wanted to sort of add a brief reflection, which is, you know, um, I wasn't familiar that the early um, that the previous scholarship uh, de-emphasized the importance of these kinds of tahrif claims from the earliest period. And in a sense, um, Whittingham is offering a very useful corrective to that. But um, I also wonder, because what you've said uh, I should qualify that but so yeah. On, yeah. But what you said was um, sort of the, in a sense the evidence is um, based on the ama- amount of apologetics on the part of the Christian early Christians uh, yes. early from the Muslim perspective of course yes. and um, one wonders of course to what extent there's kind of there are vernacular conversations going on and you know debates and those sorts of things which don't really leave um, on the Muslim side a written corpus but you know they're taken up by the yeah. scholars like John, John
1: the Baptist. And that's, that's an John excellent Baptist question and I, you know I've, I myself have struggled you know, to account for this disparity. Now right. you know other scholars like Martin Akkad, like Gordon Nicol, have said you do find references to harif but they're marginal right. uh, in, the, in this period among Muslims. Martin Akkad said that, says they're virtually non-existent is the phrase used which is clearly wrong based on, hmm. on what Martin, hmm. is, uh, Martin Whittingham has is, 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 is established. Uh, but he says, for instance, we know we know little to nothing about popular views on the Bible because these are not right, preserved right. In, in written sources. Right, and by far the most important avenue for Muslim acquaintance with the Bible, especially in the earlier period, was you know conversion, Jews and Christians who converted kind of bring with them into their Islamic knowledge of these texts directly or indirectly, mm-hmm. and uh, and exchange, dialogue, encounter, and so on. So. Uh, Al-Qasim bin Ibrahim al although he spent much of his life, in, most of his life really in the Hejaz, mm-hmm. spent some years in Egypt, and that's where he interacted with Christians, and that's presumably why he wrote this Kitab al-Radda al-Nasara. Right. So dialogue and debate uh, um, were really very, very important in, in the history of, of Christian yeah. you know, knowledge of the, in, in these debates about the Bible. Of course, not all of those debates would have, have left a record. Also, I should say... Speaking of debate, the debate we have between uh, the patriarch Timothy and the caliph Al-Mahdi, if I'm not mistaken, hmm. also makes reference to this this tahrif. So and that's based at least partly on a real dialogue, right, right between this high-ranking churchman and, and, and the Abbasid, fairly early ambassador. caliph early. So people were having these conversations. Some of them have left traces; others have not. But you know, credit to Martin because he's really done the hard work of dredging up i mean some incredibly obscure <laughs> sources right. in order to illuminate our knowledge of muslim use of the bible in this period
0: i mean uh, in a sense literary salons and things like that you know mm. who's going to not everyone has i guess uh, someone like abu hayyan who would be kind of documenting al- al-Mintaqah or something like this but we in our own age um, you know those of us who are very interested in these conversations have these wonderful devices whereby we can broadcast them and record them and, and mm. they're there for posterity um, and, uh, you know, it's it's just a completely different, that we have a glut of information now, of course. Yeah. Um, there's one, I guess, final uh, question. It's, oh, this is fairly yeah. straightforward. This is for you, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, this is a book you're, you're constantly citing. So, you, you yeah. should, so so, so, uh, this <laughs> is from Shahir. Flocking a dead horse, as it were. So, I'll I'll just read it if that's right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Salam. It's a delight to tune in to the podcast every week, and Jazakumalakhin. Uh, it's always wonderful to have an audience, and uh, I have a quick question. What's the book of Darab bin Amr that Dr. This
1: that is excellent. Seasons. This is the Kitab Tahrij. Dirar bin Amr dies circa the year two hundred, right? And Saif bin Amr dies in the 180s and he's one of the important sources for Tabari. Both of them have this idea that Paul really corrupts. Um, it's Christian doctrine, if you like, and Christian teaching. Right. And Dirar mentions, his book is really not about Christians, but so it mentions him incidentally. It says every millah, every kind of, well, it doesn't say millah, but every prophetic community has a figure who misleads it and misguides it. He hmm. refers to the Samiri or the so-called Samaritan of the Yahud, and Paul of the Nasara. Uh, So both he and I, so it's really just a fleeting reference, although he does have an interesting account of early kind of Christian sectarianism. He telescopes developments so that you already have, you know, Melkites and and Nestorians and Jacobites already in the the generation after Isa's descent. Um, But Saif bin Omar is is very interesting, and uh, you also have Jewish text, I and mean, he talks about this fascinating Toledot Yesu, this kind of parody of a gospel that uh, appeared in Aramaic in the ninth century, but some of, the, some of it clearly predates that period. Hmm. And in that text, for instance, you find the idea, interesting idea, that Paul is a kind of sincere Jew who is trying to protect the Jews from Christianity by subverting Christianity. So Paul plays an interesting role in many of these early narratives. Interesting, uh, and I mean, in Abdul Jabbar, who mostly discusses this in his *Tafheem uh, al-Anwar*, important source for later authors, and uh, Gabriel Reynolds has translated this. And especially, you know, there's been speculation since Paul Krauss in the in the in the mid 20th century 40, 1940s and 30s about his sources. Abdul Jabbar talks about um, you know Christians who wish to gain ascendancy over the Jews, and they therefore defect to Rome, and that the Christian religion is effectively the, the Roman religion, and that there were, you know, there are 80 Gospels, and they're reduced to four, right. and, and so mean. on and so forth. So this is fascinating. I mean, it's, it's really a conspiracy narrative, if you like, but still very interesting.
0: So this is found, you said, in Abdul Jabbar's
1: writings? Okay. Yeah, in Tathbeet and al-Nabuwa.
0: Ibn Hassan's
1: uh, critiques are found mostly in Al-Fassal or al right. Fisal, different titles, fil uh, right. uh and so on. And uh, Joani has a where he discusses his uh, Is it... one as well. I, I felt, wanted to, I mean, I mean
0: um, forgive me. We have like a, a couple of minutes left and I, I, I wanted, and let's see sort of how concisely we can deal with this topic. But there was a tangential sort of remark about the infamous Gospel of Barnabas, of course, right? Um, which, uh, you know, comes up in Muslim apologetic writings of the 20th century in particular, I think in the Arab world in particular, but mm-hmm. also in the West, my impression is. And he he kind of, um, so Whittingham makes a sort of remark, which I found a little odd, where he says, you mm-hmm. know, people like Abbas uh, al um, you know, didn't uh, think it was uh, authentic, uh, but it's, you know, but. That doesn't seem to necessarily be the mainstream position. I don't think he, you know, necessarily
1: takes yeah, a very so, position on this. Yeah, it's a very popular text and Omar Riad has discussed this quite a lot. Okay, okay. And Rita, okay. Rita is, so I think Al-Manar Press actually publishes it at one point. I see, I see. I think, uh, I see. But Rita is kind of ambivalent towards it, okay. but it's no doubt a very late forgery, by the way. Right, right. right. Uh, and this, this it doesn't show up is... until
0: about three hundred years ago or something like that. So well,
1: yeah, it's kind of early modern, early modern yeah. period. Uh, and yeah. yeah, so but th- that's. So, that's Ripper's
0: ambivalent, that's that's fascinating because I mean, one of the things that happens is very some of the Chinese asymmetries.
1: Yeah, right,
0: right. Uh, I mean, I I imagine a lot a lot of the time what's happening is also informationally asymmetry or not having access to a language, not knowing yeah. the sort of literature in that language, and so on, um, and uh, you know, I'm reminded uh, someone like Yusuf al-Qaradawi. Uh, I think in his um, sort of Ibn al qariyati al-Qutbi volume one, um, for, uh, you know, makes a, a passing reference to the protocols of the elders of, learned Elders of Zion, right? Oh. And <laughs> that, that sort of infamous Russian forgery that was um, so important to the Nazis. And
1: incidentally, uh, Ali Kumar has proclaimed publicly that this is a forgery right right whether Um, people listen to him or not is another question
0: (laughs) I mean funnily enough of course um, it it had been published I think with him as sort of uh, writing a forward or something like this and I think uh, I don't know uh, if there was any authenticity to that uh, whether they were just taking his name but my understanding is he sort of clarified thereafter and it may well be the case that you know someone told him actually this is a downright forgery you should absolutely disavow any relationship yes. to it um, but yeah I mean it's it's fascinating that something like that actually maintains but situation. reflecting
1: on this on this point you know to draw us yeah. back towards Martin's excellent excellent, yeah. excellent yeah. book yeah. which I commend to the audience very warmly yeah. um, this this question of misinformation yeah. so you know how productive can this dialogue and debate and so on between Muslims and Christians be if if fundamentally there's a misunderstanding of the position of the other. You know, if you're, if you're citing a biblical text that the, the Christians do not recognize as biblical text. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean, I think that the book poses some very important, suggest some very important conclusions about, right, right. you know, the nature of Muslim Christian dialogue and perhaps where, where we can learn from right. uh, some of the, the mistakes and oversights of, of this earlier period.
0: And I mean, just to go back on that reflection with respect to someone like Rida or Goma'a or Qaradawi, you know, the access to the language, I think, is so crucial as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what's wonderful about someone like Martin Whittingham is that he's, you know, he's able to read the Arabic, obviously, very, very well. And so having access to those, all of these languages, allows him to engage in in a level of scholarship that I think uh, many of us can aspire to. Um, So we're very grateful, uh, as we say, uh, to his writing this book and allowing us to perhaps reflect, I mean, I I speak also as a Muslim, sort of reflect on how to engage in that sort of uh, conversation across civilizations, across um, cultures, across religions um, in a way that's, uh, you know, constructive, beneficial uh, and and very informative, mutually very informative uh, Mm. and, uh, you know, allows us to live in this sort of age of access to immense amounts of information about each other. Um, so with that, I'd also like to thank you, Omar, um, for really taking, uh, spending the hour with us um, and taking us through this uh, wonderful book. And of course, we have uh, a few more weeks until Ramadan when we're going to be on hiatus. And so I'm really looking forward to what you have lined up for us next week. <laughs>
1: if you can. Yes, fantastic. So I do not yet have a physical copy of the book, it's on its way, right. but next week, we shall be looking at Hilary Kambach's uh, Islamic knowledge and the making of modern Egypt. Fantastic. As I said in a previous week, when doing intellectual history, especially in the modern period, it's very difficult to escape Egypt, but there we are. <laughs> yes.
0: I mean, uh, for what it's worth, neither of us are Egyptian, but we sort of inevitably gravitate towards Egypt in our own writings as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's, there's no partisanship uh, sort of suggested here but we we also have love our egyptian com- uh, you know friends <laughs> very yes w- I, very i've much read that, what,
1: three three-fifths of books published in the arab world are published in egypt apparently something like this. so it does play that, an exactly. oversized role uh, especially right. in the modern intellectual history right, right. Uh, of, and, of and the it's also world.
0: just in terms of the it's the largest population by far in the arab world it's 100 so million think, now
1: past 100 million. yeah i
0: think it's crossed 100 million now good grief <laughs> anyway, so um with that I, I look forward to um sort of uh, oh someone's Jan Islam is saying Omar is Egyptian. Well has well, egyptian generations back. Yeah. <laughs> three or four generations back. <laughs> Even more in than. a way, right. Um but uh uh, thank you, uh, everyone who's been attending and, and joining. We really, um, as always, enjoy your contributions as well. And thank you, Omar. Um, uh, <laughs> always, I want to say, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as a kind of reflex. And, yeah. uh, and of course, thank you to Martin Oettingham for writing a wonderful book.
1: For this thank week. you, to Martin. Of course, there was much more I could have said, but it's, there's a lot, of, a lot going on in this book. Do go away and read it. That, that's my recommendation. Allah, thank Allah. you for listening.
0: Take care, everyone. مع السلام السلام عليكم ورحمة الله